0: Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is a bonus episode between seasons, and we are so excited for you to join us. Oh, and happy Halloween, happy All Saints Day, happy Thanksgiving, and also happy Christmas, because we're going to be taking a break (laughs) after this. We'll get into this in a minute.
1: (laughs) Yes. So Gracie and I have been friends since forever. And we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1990 psychological horror thriller The Exorcist 3, a.k.a. Legion. Based on his screenplay-turned-novel, back into a screenplay, (laughs) it was written and directed by William Peter Blady. The film stars George C. Scott, Brad Dourif, Jason Miller, and Ed Flanders. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen
0: this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. And despite its title, The Exorcist 3 is technically a direct sequel to the original The Exorcist from 1973. Mm -hmm. Completely ignoring The Exorcist 2, the heretic? (laughs) Um, Yeah. As you should. (laughs) Right. So if you want to watch The Exorcist, the original one, before you watch this movie, then go right ahead. Uh, Specific trigger warnings for this episode can be found in the show notes. Are you still here? Great. Then let's get this morning started. So um, before we get into the plot summary, uh, I just want to say, (laughs) (laughs) Abby and I were talking a little bit before we started hitting record, but um, I kind of came to the revelation, and Abby did too, that we... Uh, after the past almost, th- almost three years, it'll be three years coming up, we have sort of been off the rails when it comes to <laughs> the behind-the-scenes aspect of this show. Yeah. <laughs> because maybe we are getting the content out in a timely manner, like we do one episode a month, not that big of a deal, but behind the scenes, it is not going the way it used to go. No. <laughs> <laughs> now you have you've been listening to the show, you're like, okay, y'all, we know you have kids, we know you have jobs, blah 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 blah. You know, we talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. But it's not even that. It's it's yeah, that's a part of why like <laughs> things need to be like fixed behind the scenes. Like we need to do scheduling and stuff around that, whatever. But also like we we weren't I wasn't, I should say. I was not delegating. <laughs> Aww. the work. I was trying to take on way too much. And I was stressing myself out. And poor Abby is like, I'm your co-host. Let me help. You know? And so it's just like, I don't know what it was. I just didn't, I don't know. I went, I don't know. I lost my brain for a second. And I was like, this is how it has to be. Blah, 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 blah. I can just do it. And I did not delegate. So that was my bad. Um I also... our recording setup works but it is very archaic it takes a lot of work to set it up it takes a lot of work to take it down it takes a lot of work to make sure nothing goes wrong and if you have (laughs) and if you have a sound engineer in your studio with you to help then it's not that big of a deal but we don't have that we used to have that when we started. My husband did that. But we don't have that anymore. It's just us two. Um, so because of that, we're not doing this setup anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it, will be, it will be like a plan B setup if like something else goes wrong with what we're going to try to do. So my sister is a sound engineer. She also did the the theme song for us. She's actually going to re uh, work the theme song. She's going to make it sound a little bit different, a little bit better, remaster it. She's going to do some editing for us as well um and she's also going to come over to my house and we're going to talk about recording setups and what's going to work and she lives in the same area as Abby so I assume she's going to plan with you Abby at some point and Mm kind of figure out your setup as well to make sure that we're on the same page and it's going to be great everybody it's going to be great and I didn't (laughs) want that that announcement to sound like a big deal because it's not but I did feel bad that you know We didn't get an episode out by Halloween, and I was a little sad about that. Um, But there are are a lot of things that need to be done behind the scenes, and we need to rework things. We talked about marketing. We talked about getting sponsors again. That's all stuff that kind of fell by the wayside about three years ago when I moved and um, my son was born. And then, obviously, Abby had things happen right after that, so we never really had a chance to kind of stop and regroup. Right. And after that 100th episode we just kept going. I kept going. I kept saying, next episode. Okay, next episode. Going. But it's like, <laughs> I forgot that we take a break between seasons. I mean, that's what I mean, where it's like, things that we used to do are just sort of like, not popping in my brain anymore. Mm-hmm. So this is a bonus episode. This will hopefully tie tie you guys over until... Uh, we come back, but we're going to be doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Nothing bad is happening. Abby and I are still really good friends. Yeah. <laughs> Some people are like, Are you guys okay? And I'm like, Yes. Oh my God. I didn't mean for it to sound like anything bad was happening. It's just that we need to just regroup. That's all. Yeah. It's super healthy, super normal. And to everyone who sent us messages, to everyone who wants to help, we have some people who want to help us with marketing. We have some people who still want to help us with research. Nadia Moraga, who's been helping us the past three episodes, helped us again with this one. She's awesome. So she continuously wants to help support us with research. Amber is always there to help us and step in uh, to write stuff. So that's wonderful. We have a lot of support and we are so lucky. And
1: we can't wait to come back with, like, a new sound. It'll be great. I know. I'm super excited. Also, Gracie is stuck with me for the rest of her life. So <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, everyone.
0: <laughs> it's going to be so good. I'm so excited. OK. Yes. So with that said, Abby, would you please be so kind as to read the
1: plot summary? Absolutely. Absolutely. Detective Kinderman is haunted by the brutal death of his friend, Father Karras, the priest who sacrificed his life to save a little girl named Reagan from the demon Pazuzu 15 years ago. On the anniversary of Karras' death, Kinderman finds out that a serial killer known as the Gemini is killing again. The only problem is that the Gemini has been dead for over a decade. As Kinderman investigates the recent murders, he discovers that there is a strange man, only known as Patient X, living at the hospital where some of the murders have taken place. Kinderman goes to see this man and recognizes him almost instantly. But it's impossible. The man he resembles is dead. Done. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, is Patient X really Father Karras? Is he the Gemini killer? Or both and many more. Ooh, thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. You're welcome.
0: Yes. (laughs) So let's get into the production of this film. So in 1971, American writer and devout Catholic, William Peter Blatty, um, the Catholic part is going to be coming into the story pretty soon here.
1: (laughs) We need to say
0: that he's a devout Catholic. (laughs) Yes. Because it has a lot to do with what he writes about. Yeah. So um, he published his fifth novel entitled The Exorcist in 1971. According to Sam Deegan, quote, after receiving undergraduate and master's degrees in English literature from Georgetown University, Blatty enlisted in the Air Force and joined the Psychological Warfare Division. Nick Juncker reported in the Latin Post that Blatty used these techniques in The Exorcist, saying, quote, on top of creating effective propaganda in warfare situations, Blatty was also chief of a division that studied the effects that certain psychological tactics had on people especially negative effects, unquote.
1: God, that's terrifying. Yeah,
0: so that explains why my agnostic husband is scared to death by this movie. (laughs) (laughs) It worked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, According to Robin Book, quote, the novel was inspired by a 1949 case of demonic possession and exorcism that Blatty heard about while he was a student studying literature at Georgetown University, unquote. So at first, the novel did not perform well and was set to be discontinued until Bladdy was offered a chance to go on the popular talk show, The Dick Cavett Show, after the scheduled guest canceled at the last minute. Blatty reportedly enthralled audiences while talking about the nature of good and evil and the existence of the devil. And not long after that, the novel became a bestseller. That's kind of wild to me that it didn't start out a bestseller. It had to kind of work its way into people's ears. (laughs) I know. So strange. Yeah. Okay. So I don't think I need to tell anyone how epically successful The Exorcist was when it hit theaters in 1973. But I'm going to tell you anyway. (laughs) According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, since it was a horror film that had gone well over budget and did not have any major stars in the lead roles, Warner Brothers did not have high expectations for The Exorcist. Warner Brothers did not preview the film for critics and booked its initial release for only 30 screens in 24 theaters, mostly in large cities and their metropolitan areas, unquote but on a budget of only 12 million, quote, the film grossed 8.62 million in modern dollars in its first week, setting house records in each theater, unquote. So, although it had not made back its budget that first week, as word of mouth spread about it, more people came to the theaters and it grossed over get this, 30 million in one month. Wow. And I saw on box office mojo that it eventually made almost 445 million before it finally left the big screen
1: holy cats
0: i know um so the film wouldn't be dethroned as the most profitable horror movie ever until 2017's it hit theaters 44 years later wow just bonkers So according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, reports of strong audience reactions were widespread. Many viewers fainted. A woman in London when the film opened there reportedly fainted before the film even began. And uh, trigger warning, a woman in New York was said to have miscarried during the show. One man at another show lasted only 20 minutes before he had to be carried out on a stretcher. Uh, Nausea was the most commonly reported reaction. (laughs) Uh, Quote, we have a plumber practically living here now, said the manager of Toronto University's theater. (laughs) And one of the best things that could happen is if the Pope denounces it. This is what William Friedkin, the director of the movie, told an interviewer a month after The Exorcist was released. And sure enough, <laughs> the Pope did denounce it, and it still did well in theaters. The film was the first horror movie to be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, and it won two Oscars, Best Adapted Screenplay, which went to Blatty, since he adapted his own novel, and Best Sound Design. Mm. So, yeah, there's a reason why critics critics say crap like the scariest film since the exorcist and <laughs> they review like modern horror movies oh my uh, God. because the exorcist undoubtedly set the bar for horror movies and it set it very very high <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but a stew mocker from scream says let's face it baby you gotta have a sequel <laughs> so of course uh, according to bob mccabe Neither William Peter Blatty nor William Friedkin, the writer, producer, and the director, respectively, of the original The Exorcist, had any desire to involve themselves in an Exorcist sequel. The devil loses. The damsel is saved. Order is restored. The end, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, But studios don't care about artists and their feelings um they like money hashtag capitalism so (laughs) the exorcist 2 the heretic was released in june of 1977 just one month after star wars was released which is kind of wild to me and also probably one of the many reasons it bombed epically
1: (laughs) oh my god yeah
0: Yeah, it bombed on a $14 million budget. It barely made half of that, which is not a success in the eyes of producers, especially compared to the first movie. It was also bashed by both critics and audience members. And the film, in my opinion, and it's been a while since I've seen it, is pretty schlocky at best. So... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I've never seen it. Oh, it's a schlocky mess. From what I remember, it was so schlocky. Which, if you like that, that's great. But I can see coming up after the exorcist people were like what the fuck is this yeah Anyway, <laughs> what so fuck? fast forward a few years. Disappointed in where his story had gone with the heretic, writer William Peter Blatty wrote a screenplay for his true sequel to The Exorcist and called it Legion. He got back together with William Friedkin, who directed the first movie, and they started talking about this sequel, but they eventually started butting heads, and Friedkin eventually just left the picture due to creative differences. <laughs> By the way... <laughs> Blatty and Friedkin, oh my god, if you watch interviews with them, it is so funny, because they are like the definition of frenemies. Oh
1: my god. It's so
0: great. I love it, actually. So anyway. (laughs) According to The Exorcist, Out of the Shadows, despite the critical and commercial failure of the previous sequel... Warner Brothers was, was keen to proceed with Blatty and Freakin's plans for another Exorcist film. But of course, Freakin left, so Warner Brothers left too, and the project went into developmental hell. And Blatty wrote Legion as a novel instead instead, and published it in 1983. So the screenplay became a novel. It was a huge success, and Blatty then decided to turn the book back into a screenplay. <laughs> But Blatty then went uh, with the film company Morgan Creek, who felt like the film would be a huge success. So, you know, he had he had a, a company that believed in his vision. Yes, uh, yes. Blatty offered directorial responsibilities to John Carpenter, who liked the script. However, Carpenter backed out when it became very clear that Blatty wanted to direct the movie himself. <laughs> <laughs> And from what I understand, John Carpenter doesn't really have an ego. He he actually, like, he he even doesn't talk to certain directors that he used to talk to anymore because he wow. feels like they've gone too much up their own asses. Oh, my so God. I can see him being like, you know what, dude? You seem like you really are passionate about your own story here. I'm just going to leave, and you should just do it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I can see him
0: just being like, Totally chill. We'll just be like, okay, goodbye.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Daddy Carpenter.
0: <laughs> yeah. So with Morgan Creek's blessing, Bladdy was able to direct The Exorcist 3 a.k.a. Legion. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, the central role of Lieutenant Kinderman had to be recast as Lee J. Cobb, who played the part in the original The Exorcist, had died in 1976. Oscar winner George C. Scott signed up for the role. Impressed by Blatty's screenplay, he said, quote, It's a horror film and much more. It's a real drama, intricately crafted with offbeat, interesting characters, and that's what makes it genuinely frightening. Hmm. Um, Ed Flanders took the role of Father Dyer, who was previously played by actual Catholic priest Father William O'Malley and Zora Lambert, who plays Kinderman's wife, is remembered for her lead role in another horror film, 1971's Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which we have an episode about.
1: Yes. Also, freaking anytime I see or hear George C. Scott in a movie, all I can think of is um The Rescuers Down Under because he oh, plays Oh <laughs> my
0: god, you are right.
1: He is he that plays the, the hunter. Cliche. Yes, he's the poacher. Yeah. And oh, I, my God. I fucking love that movie so much. <laughs> I love it. Also, if you watch that movie, they even give him, they give McLeach, his character, like the same nose and mouth. It's yes. the best thing. It's he its looks- literally like a cartoon version of him. I love it. Yeah, so he looks, it's
0: like a younger version of him for sure. Yeah yeah oh my god what what i love though is that george c scott is like he has i don't want to say he has a look because he does have a look but he has a presence yes and every film he's in this presence is right there because he plays scrooge in a version of yeah uh a christmas carol which is one of if not the best version of a christmas carol in my opinion it's
1: uh also i would consider that a horror movie
0: for sure sure That could be something one day we could talk about is A Christmas Carol. Um,
1: Oh, my God. Yes.
0: Also, just like his voice. Like I said, like he screams like, Joanna! And like that. The rescuers. And then he, my favorite line in this film, it is not in the file. It is not. (laughs) Which, when we first recorded this, I remember you saying, um that you're
1: like that at work sometimes. <laughs> Literally. If you work in human services, everything is supposed to be filed. Every single little goddamn thing. And not everything will be filed. It's just like part of, you know, it's it's part of the job. It's not going to be in the file sometimes. And I find myself often just losing it. <laughs> Being like, it is not in the file. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, it's so great. So many oh. great George C. Scott moments in this film. Oh, I the other know. one I like is get the paperwork on this patient.
1: Now! <laughs> Oh, it's so good. Screaming at the nurse. We're fine! Oh, yeah,
0: that's right. The other one is good, too. <laughs> uh, he is good. such a mood. I can't stand it. I know. Ooh. I know. Ugh. According to Anton Bittel, quote, after Blatty submitted his completed film, the production company realized that they had a sequel to The Exorcist with no actual exorcism in it. <sighs> so Morgan Creek insisted that Blatty shoot in an- entire Entirely different effects-heavy exorcism-based climax in order to give the audience what it wanted, and then they released that version of the film as *The Exorcist 3 instead of *Legion*, which is what it was going to be called, or *The Exorcist Legion*. Either way, *Legion* was taken out of the title. Very sad, Mm.
1: according
0: to. Brad Dorff, he who plays the Gemini killer uh, and initially had a larger role in the Legion version of the film, he said, quote, We all felt really bad about it, but Bladdy tried to do his best under very difficult circumstances, and I remember George C. Scott saying that the folks would only be satisfied if Madonna came out and sang a song at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Dourif feels that the original version was a hell of a lot purer, and he liked it a lot more. As it stands now, it's a mediocre film. There are parts that have no right to be there, he said. Which, I don't know. I disagree somewhat. Uh, Maybe this is really square of me, but I think the ending is really exciting compared to the original ending where he just shoots somebody (laughs) and then walks out of the room. Both endings are radically different. I think I Mm -hmm. still would have liked the original ending if that was the only version I knew of. But now that I see this version, I'm like, I don't know. I kind of like... I kind of like this big Exorcist ending, but that's just me. So The Exorcist 3 was scheduled to be released in September of 1990, but was released in the U.S. in August instead. And according to The Exorcist Out of the Shadows, quote, the film was released only a month before the Exorcist parody film Repossessed, starring Linda Blair and Leslie Nielsen, was released. Blair claimed that The Exorcist 3 was rushed released ahead of Repossessed, hijacking the latter's publicity and forcing the comedy to be released a month later than was originally intended, unquote.
1: I don't know.
0: (laughs) Well, I don't I can see why they would want to release it early, because listen, if you're wondering when The Exorcist became funny and not scary anymore, this is it. 1990 you know yeah Yep. I mean maybe the heretic had a big part of that too but like by the time it was 1990 everyone was making fun of the exorcist it wasn't funny it wasn't scary anymore it was only funny Mm -hmm. so I can see why they'd want to rush release the movie before repossessed I don't know there's a part of me thinks maybe it would have got more people to the theater but then it's like I can see why maybe they were thought that was like bad publicity so
1: (laughs) it's like (laughs) in Beetlejuice Right. I've seen the Exorcist a hundred times and it keeps getting funnier every yep. time. <laughs>
0: yep, exactly. <laughs> Basically. Well and that and Beetlejuice came out in nineteen
1: eighty eight. Oh so, there yeah, you go. People were
0: already starting to to kind of move towards it being kinda funny. Yeah. So, yep. so the film uh was a modest financial success, but again, compared to the original, it was a flop and at the time it was received mixed it received mixed reviews from both audience members and critics bladdy did earn a saturn award for best screenplay for the film but you know com- in comparison it's no oscar yeah in October 2016, Scream Factory released the director's cut of the film on Blu-ray, with some exceptions, because not all of Blatty's footage for Legion was recovered, and even some of the footage that was recovered was ripped from, like, VHS dailies, so they could only work with what they had, and for clarity, y'all, we are talking about the theatrical cut of this film, aka The Exorcist 3, uh, and we're not talking about Legion, which is the director's cut. hmm even though we will mention some stuff from Legion. Yeah. According to Dan Owen, quote, The movie elicits a few excellent moments of dread and logic-defying horror. The atmosphere is also appreciably thick and unnerving when it wants to be, thanks mostly to some weird sound design with groans and rumbles and announcing a demonic presence in the air. And according to Liam Gaugen, quote, The Exorcist 3 examines what it means for a normal person to experience something beyond this world that shakes them to their core. And according to Megan Navarro, the mere mention of The Exorcist 3 tends to bring to mind two things. One of the most effective and iconic jump scares of all time and Brad Dourif's intense performance as the Gemini Killer. So if you want to watch it guys... Y'all, I implore you to watch it at least for those two reasons.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Even the one jump scare s- scene is like, that's like, um, that should be taught in like every horror 101 class. Like, it's you incredible. You are so
0: right, though, because it gets me every time I watch this.
1: And I've seen this movie multiple times. Dude, it gave me nightmares <gasps> for days the first oh. time I watched this movie. It's so No good. joke.
0: and I'm not even I don't even think we should tell people even if I don't think we should tell people when this jump scare is I think people just need to experience it yeah
1: yep for real and if you've seen it like if you know you know you know exactly what we're talking about it is (laughs) if you know you
0: know it's one of those things yep
1: yeah okay well
0: let's get into our discussion so patriarchal institutions and masculinity in the exorcist three so, something that I never really considered, honestly, until I was reading the research for this episode, was that this film focuses on three major problematic and patriarchal institutions. It focuses on medicine and healthcare, the police, so law enforcement, and religion slash Catholicism. Now, this isn't anything new. All three of these institutions are very heavily featured in the original Exorcist as well. Um, Reagan is seen by, what, like 80 doctors, as her mom tearfully says to Father Karras. Um, and they can't help her, showing how women's health care just sucks. Um, <laughs> the police are there, too, trying to solve the bizarre murder of the director, Burt Dennings. And they can't help they, because it's out of their realm. You know, it's it's not a human murder. Basically, it, it, he was murdered by a demon. So yeah, they they're kind of lost um, and incompetent. Right. But then there's, but then there's Jesus, Abby.
1: Jesus, Jesus can help
0: <laughs> through the help of an exorcism. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, convert and be saved, basically. So Reagan is saved through. Religion. Uh, Reagan even kisses the cheek of Father Dyer at the end of the film. This is not in the movie, but in the book. Chris McNeil, Reagan's mother, becomes a believer and converts to Catholicism after Reagan is saved. So Blatty wanted to make sure everyone knew that at the end of The Exorcist, the devil did not win. Christianity and faith and belief wins. Um, it's a bittersweet ending for sure, but it's it's solid. Blatty obviously believed that out of the top three, religion, especially Catholicism slash Christianity, was the only thing that could fix what was wrong with the world. The Exorcist 3 has all of this, but it's almost kind of heightened to the nth degree. Like all three of these things are heightened. And I'd argue that unlike the first film, none of these institutions come on top at the end. And that includes religion. And unlike the first film, instead of focusing on mostly the female perspective of a a mother and daughter living with and at the mercy of these patriarchal systems, we instead follow all the men who work within these institutions. Mm -hmm. So obviously, Father Karras is kind of the hero of the first movie, and we do follow his tale of losing and then regaining his faith. But I'd argue that we follow Chris and Reagan, especially Chris, just as long on that journey as well. I, mm-hmm. I didn't actually count the screen time, but there is a part of me that feels like Chris McNeil has more screen time than Father Karis. But yeah. maybe I am wrong. But if, but it, when I watch it, I do feel like I see her on screen just as often as I see him. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's just as much her story as it is his. So that's kind of interesting. Right. Um either way, The Exorcist 3 takes a very masculine approach to this storytelling. Um according to the article The Exorcist 3: A Reaganless Affair by Carrie Lynn Reinhard, the author states, quote, "In The Exorcist 3, we've moved away from the idea of possession being focused on women." But we still are seeing similar struggles of power that are highlighted through a feminist critique, namely in the fact that the man is able to possess other people to do his bidding. The demon here shares some fellowship with fellow evil force Dracula and his ability to entrance women to become his slaves, unquote. So we're going to talk more on this in a bit, but I definitely find it interesting that Blatty shifted the focus away from having two women being saved by a godly man and his sacrifice to having these very emotionally wrecked male protagonists at the center of the film. Yeah. Especially an older man, Kinderman, who doesn't actually convert at the end of the film. Mm. And I haven't read the book, like I haven't read Legion, so I don't know what the difference is, but... All of the priests in this film either die horrible deaths or they just fail at what they're doing. Oh. (laughs) They do, which is like shocks me that this was written by Blatty, who is like super Catholic. The male doctor, the chain-smoking psychiatrist, he also (laughs) fails. He's unable to successfully, successfully treat patient X. And according to Reinhardt, the doctor of the mental asylum is memorizing a script of something to tell Kinderman, i.e. he's preparing a lie. Uh Uh-huh. And his office is decorated with a lot of religious and spiritual symbols from many different world cultures. So the doctor is positioned as, you know, this is maybe an ableist word here, but it's crazy. And he's evil in some way, which, again, calls into question the role and power of science in the matters of the modern world, unquote. Mm. And even though Kinderman lives at the end of the movie and he kills Karis slash the Gemini at the end by literally blowing him away, it's really sad. And it still leaves him just as broken and doubtful as he was at the start of the film, if not more so. And there's no sense of resolution and peace making the ending itself seem masculine and violent.
1: Yeah, definitely. Something that's just like kind of slightly off topic, but might fit in here really well is that like in this area, there were a lot of these quack psychiatrists and therapists. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a really interesting book by Dr. Elizabeth Loftus called The Myth of Repressed Memory in it. She talks about how therapists were basically implanting these traumatic memories into their patients, equating all of their traumas to this childhood sexual abuse. And this was huge during the Satanic Panic when, like, all of these parents and these guardians of young children were literally handed life prison sentences for abusing their children in order to complete these, like, Satanic rituals. So, It really was absolute insanity and something that we don't talk about enough, but, you know, more continues to come to light and that kind of thing. But psychiatry played this huge role in it, as well as Christianity, because people were so afraid of the devil and, like, the whole, like, the devil made me do it kind of thing. But, like, big surprise, it's not the devil that you actually have to worry about. It's these institutions that are run... To benefit these patriarchal societies and the trauma that causes people to kill. Like, it's all brought about by this idea that, you know, and it wasn't just male psychiatrists that did this. Like, a lot of female ones did too, but it was this idea that, like, these men in power can be in control and can really, like, pull the strings to what was happening in their patients' lives. It was like very, very bananas. You know what really struck me just now was that
0: no wonder we live in a society now where people who have traumatic experiences are not believed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Am I right, though? Right? Yes. Yes. That is like we have a history of literally implanting false memories into people and then Mm -hmm. when it comes out that it's false then it's like well it could be false it could be this it could be that right you know what i mean it what a joke honestly though what a huge joke and it makes me so angry
1: (laughs) well it makes me extremely angry because you know and i'm sure all of you know by now if you've been listening to the show I'm extremely passionate about psychology and neuroscience and the ability to help people with mental disorders. And this really awful past that psychology and psychiatry has has made it so difficult to get people the help that they need. And for what? Like to feed the ego of these doctors and make them seem like they're on like the cutting edge of psychiatry like no you did it be for selfish reasons because you wanted to come out on top and it's just like Ugh. it's reflected in this movie so 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 well
0: like <laughs> i mean in itself that doctor is sort of a parody Yes, i you know yes. i mean it's he's it's a, it's really funny but at the same time it is spoopy Mm -hmm. how I mean when I think I noticed maybe for the first time that paper that he's caught that he's like reading off of yeah I I wouldn't say the last time I watched it right before this but I'd say the the last time I watched it before I watched it for this episode Mm -hmm. I had never caught that he was reading from a script and when I saw that I immediately got chills I was like wait what I was like, oh. I mean, it's scary because you're like, what is going on? What? Yeah. Who, who is hiding what? Who told him to say this? Is he just trying to not sound like, is he trying to sound like he has it together? So he has to write a script or mm-hmm. did someone tell him to say this?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really creepy. It is extremely creepy.
0: Oh, and I guess this is also slightly off topic, but like it reminds me of this video that I watched where a drag queen, I think it was Trixie was talking about how Christians were all upset about drag Queens doing the the story time to kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she said something along the lines of the only men I know who wear dresses and groom kids are, are, you know, and then she crossed herself, meaning Catholics. (laughs) I know. And I was like, Whoa. And then Trixie said, I don't know anyone who's gone to therapy because they went to a drag show, but I do know people who have gone to therapy because of their religious upbringing. Or something yes. like that i'm paraphrasing yeah but um
1: like and i'm so glad that we actually are ending up like re-recording this because there is a video that's floating around on instagram of this woman and she is i think she's in like a town court meeting in tennessee mm-hmm. and she's talking about how like she's never been raped at a drag show, but she has been raped in church. I did see that video. And yep. she's like, and you know what? The men in the church told me it was my fault. <laughs> I was like, holy shit. Like, I got chills listening to her because I'm like, you know what? You are correct. Right. Because places like that, those are safe spaces typically.
0: Mm hmm. <laughs> So according to Reinhardt, there is no real rite of exorcism performed as the one here is interrupted and the whole event ends with Kinderman putting a bullet in Karis's head. It is a very masculine act of violence, putting something into someone else and killing them, whereas an exorcism is about trying to take something out of someone to save them. Which is a rather feminine act. Maybe that's why this exorcism ends with a bullet. The possessed person was a man, and the only proper way to save a man is with a masculine act.
1: Mm-hmm. The feminine
0: act of exorcism is shown as weak when dealing with a possessed man, as indicated by how quickly the demon dispatches father mourning. But when you have a masculine violence, masculine violence at your disposal, Then a possessed man can be stopped, and yet the vanquishing of the demon is still performed by a man representing a patriarchal institution, law enforcement. Kinderman is even assisted by the representative for the patriarchal institution of religion as Father Morning's near-death intervention prevents Kinderman from from succumbing to the demon's tricks. The man, in caps, has the last word, whether it's through the language of the Roman rites or through the retort of a snub-nosed revolver, unquote.
1: Yeah, like these institutions are, they're supposed to be humane and they're there to ensure that justice should be served the right way. But I mean, if you look at it from this film's perspective, here we are, Um, we get to the end because of divine intervention and these judgment calls from a man. (laughs) And yes, this is a horror film and yes, it's make-believe. But honestly, this really isn't out of the realm of possibility for what we see like... In the mental health industry, like many times we see police officers who are not trained to deal with this very specific symptomology that goes hand in hand with like, for example, these AXIS-1 diagnoses like schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar, borderline, like a lot of officers aren't trained in these areas. so it can be really, really scary to deal with something when it's unpredictable, especially with human beings. But if you kind of take it and approach it from an informed perspective, it gives you kind of a better handle on, like, ways to handle it, aside from, you know, like, shooting people in the head. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, right. in, in this film... Kinderman sort of goes blind. Like he is a skeptic and he's tossed around in these religious waters and he has no idea what to do with the religious aspect of things. So of course he would react the only way he knows how and that is by shooting in order to survive or like in order to protect the public that he's supposed to be defending. And it's kind of this eerie reflection of how we see a lot of these stories play out in real life and I think it does like it really does have a lot to do with how we have socially viewed masculine energy for a long time like I think that if this movie had been flipped and it was a woman in the position perhaps she would have been tasked with like really talking it out Seeing what the root of the guy's trauma was, blah blah blah. Like, I highly doubt that if it had been a woman police officer, she would have just like point blank shot him.
0: <laughs> you well, know what I mean? Yes, and I, I don't know if Blatty quite understands how to write women in that sense. Right. Yeah. Um. So I, if that was the case, I don't know if he would have been the right person to write the script if the if the if the if kinderman was a a woman uh yeah but also
1: i think it's important that kinderman was a man you know we um kind of talked about it when we recorded this last episode and I mean the time we recorded before this. <laughs> yeah, the first the first shot. <laughs> yeah. We were kind of touching on that theme of like you can like problematic movies as long as you understand that like this isn't real life. But I right. also you,
0: you can like problematic movies as long as you know why they are problematic.
1: Yes. And I think really this movie speaks volumes about what it is to look at things from a feminist perspective because you're looking at it through um a male lens and you're really getting like that side of the story and getting to see him run the gamut of those emotions and stuff like that like he is such an emotional character and I feel like even in the 90s that was not seen in a lot of male characters especially Male police officers. Well,
0: especially George C. Scott, who is Patton. Yes, you know, like that's yeah. what he won his Oscar for, right? Was the movie yeah. Patton, where he played a guy in the military? Yes. Like it was like, because you're correct. Like, here's the thing: when you're looking at movies from the '90s backward, you yep. you're not gonna get a lot of feminist movies. No, and there's nothing we can do about that that's just how it how it was and it sucks and yeah maybe they're like super problematic but that's that is how it is we can't change it we can change what we do now but we can't change what the past is right so like all we can do is like you said like look at these older movies with a feminist lens to see like what these stories about these male characters are trying to portray and I think you're right I think one of the good things about this movie is that Kinderman is played by George C. Scott, who does bring some tenderness to his character. Absolutely, Because to give credit where it's due, there is a lot of tenderness displayed by him and the other men in this film. Like, for example, Kinderman and Father Dyer's friendship, which is talked about a lot. When you, when you read reviews about this movie, everyone mentions this friendship, even yeah. though it's only, like, displayed on screen for, like, a total, of, like, 10 minutes, I think. Maybe yeah. a little bit longer, but, like, not a lot. It's short-lived in the context of the film, but it feels genuine and sweet thanks to Blatty's writing skills about these two men. The, and Ed Flanders and George C. Scott mm-hmm. have great chemistry, and Kinderman shows sadness quite often he, he cries multiple times in this movie and um yeah. in his dream he lovingly like holds the arm or the hand of the young boy or he hugs him of the young boy who died who was a mm-hmm. part of the like kids police academy thing yeah. and um kinderman also truly loves his wife and his daughter and they seem to really love him like i feel like anytime they're together like they try to say goodbye and good night to each other when they can. Yeah. Like the daughter isn't forced to like say goodbye, say goodbye to your dad, you know, bye dad. She actually really cares about her dad, you know? Yeah. It's kind of nice. And um Kinderman also treats the elderly patients at the hospital, especially the f- mentally ill female patients with kindness and patience. Mm-hmm. He could easily be a complete jerk to them or be super frustrated with them and he's not yeah he he is very patient and sweet to them so i guess for all of kinderman's outbursts he has this gentle side to him in these gentle moments um that very well may be like because he has seen so much evil supernatural or not and he's trying to hard to find a balance, but he also could be like, he could like genuinely be this really sweet and caring guy who is in a job that is high stress and it's patriarchal and it's problematic <laughs> Yeah, and has racist roots and it might be maybe very traumatizing for him
1: as a gentle man to be in a very aggressive job. I think so. And it's very evident by the people that he works with as well, which I think I want to say we talk about this later in the episode, but it's like he is really in his own way defying those norms and kind of bringing this, even though he is an older man, he's bringing this breath of fresh air into his police department because I feel like in a lot of these films you just see like oh I'm like an angry masculine man and I have these outbursts and people better get out of my way because I'm investigating a murder like it's not it doesn't feel like that with him so right and I don't
0: I don't want to talk too much about that the the blackface, because I don't feel like it's my place but right right I think that it is interesting that Here's this old white detective who is very visibly disturbed by what he has seen. Yeah. To this young black boy. So I, I just think that that is a very interesting take. And Bladdy is white, so right. that he wrote this. So anyway, I just think that that was a, that was a very interesting, very interesting thing to add to his story. Yeah. So, especially in 1990, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um. Yeah. If anyone has any takes on this, we'd love to hear it. Please send us a message. We are still going to be on social media through the time that we're working on the show, so please text us through there. Let us know. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Sam Deegan in their essay, I Believe in Death, William Peter Blatty and the Horror of Faith, quote, Blatty seems to posit that violence defines masculinity on some fundamental level. Kinderman is racked with guilt, presumably, as he has not done enough to ebb or appease this flow of violence. As a result, this film involves a conversation between two male characters attempting to work out how to live in such a violent world. Unquote. And, quote, Blatty's texts explore deep-seated, if unfocused, anxieties about gender relations where madness and thus evil exists because of uncertainty about one's place in the world, either as a man or as a Christian, trauma causes a fundamental division within the self, which cannot be solved in these texts by reason and science alone, unquote.
1: Ooh, yes. I love that. And it blends so well into our next topic of <laughs> Catholic guilt and religious trauma. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> mm. All right, so it's no secret that Catholic guilt is a very real thing within American society. Um, But I feel like this was especially true in the 80s and 90s when morals, quote unquote, were a really big part of politics thanks to Reagan and all of that garbage. We've been talking a lot about
0: Ronald Reagan recently, haven't we? I feel like our last three episodes were about how effed up the Reagan era was. (laughs) <laughs> oh, my God. What uh, a shit show of a presidency. Holy yeah. cow.
1: Well, I feel like Reaganism really influenced a lot of the horror genre because yeah. its <laughs> its after effects were felt for generations, and it affected so many communities in really, really negative ways. And mm-hmm. he was a giant piece of trash, and his policies left America in shambles, so that kind of lies at the heart of so many, um, like, American horror stories. And mm-hmm. maybe someday we should write a book about the link between horror and Reagan's America. But um, I know I haven't
0: seen a book about that. Maybe that's our maybe that's
1: our calling. <laughs> maybe. Oh, my God. Yeah. According to Sean Beatty for Talk Film Society, The Exorcist 3 opens on the anniversary of Karis's death. And Kinderman's guilt over his lost friend's death hangs over the proceedings quite heavily. Kinderman does have one thing keeping him going, though. His friendship with Father Dyer, a mutual acquaintance through Father Damien Karras, who also shares in his grief. Every year, they attempt to cheer each other up by meeting for a movie at a local theater, Neither man is made to feel better save for the feeling that at least they tried to help each other. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I just have to point out how much I love this in the film. Like each man has these separate conversations about how he has to cheer the other one up. That's
0: true, <laughs> yeah. They're both going into it like I'm only doing this because he gets so sad
1: around this time of year. Yeah, both- like I don't <laughs> get sad. I I'm fine. I, know. <laughs> I-, I have sadness what? No. You're right. <laughs> it's it just reminds me of that like grandfatherly tenderness but um bd goes on to say the desire to help others who you know are in pain is a strong point of guilt for catholics and often those in the catholic faith find themselves saying i wish i could have done more to help when something goes wrong um kinderman isn't among the religious, he spends quite a lot of time arguing with Dyer about the existence of a loving Christian God over topics such as suffering, death, disease, and murder, with which Kinderman himself is quite familiar. Being a homicide detective, he's seen the absolute worst of humanity and what it can do to one another. There's no denying that it's gotten to him in his long career. Yeah, and the part where he
0: talks about the boy Thomas being killed is is equal parts chilling and, and heartbreaking. And he kind of has to make Father Dyer kind of get it. Yeah. He's like, I don't think you get the shit I see on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. You know? And while he explains the murder scene, Father Dyer's just like sitting there, like shaking. Yeah. And the waitress comes in and she's like, Can I take your order? Do you still want that? <laughs> are you okay with that father and he's just like Like, oh my god it's like uh, read the room but yeah um, it's really upsetting for father dyer but i think it's also a huge wake up call for him like obviously i'm sure he's heard a lot of stuff when he does confession and whatever but like that's also problematic whatever we're not talking about that right now um (laughs) but, but um it sort of reminds me of that whole like. Thoughts and pairs, pr- you know. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and
1: pairs. Tots
0: and pairs. <laughs> Hashtag not again. Hashtag oh no. You know, it's just like, yeah, you're not helping by just saying everything's gonna be okay. Like that's yeah. just not how that's not how you help.
1: Right. It's also something that we can relate to, kind of how the police handle and talk about the traumas that they see. Sure. Like <laughs> that being said, I want to be clear and say that we are. Both not one hundred percent supportive of the police in this country. We're not. <laughs> uh, sorry, not sorry.
0: We are merely talking from a dramatic lens. There is no denying that the police see real life horror shows on a daily basis, but they also have a lot of a lot of stuff that they gotta really, really fix and dismantle. Right.
1: right. Anyway, continue. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Kinderman is just kind of spilling his guts and everyone around him is like just living their life. And it's a great metaphor for how the police carry their weight and not really just the police, even like emergency responders and, you know, people in law enforcement who might not be police and all that kind of stuff. Kinderman is he's just kind of breaking down more and more as the film progresses. And it's like (laughs) so normal. Yeah, right. And it's not in the same breath. Like, after Father Dyer's passing, he's trying to talk to the men in the hospital about the Gemini killer. He does this, like, in between tears and bouts of anger. And it's very powerful stuff to see. Like, he has a lot on his plate that he's trying to deal with. So, Jerry Smith, for their article makes an interesting point when he says kinderman is a man completely angry at the idea of a god so upset that something could exist just to sit back and watch people like the little boy or his dear friend father dyer be murdered so it's arguable that kinderman hates the idea of any higher power whether it's good or not and at the end of the film kinderman doesn't convert or even admit to believing in god or even goodness in its pure form. Instead, he admits to believing in evil. Smith goes on to say, Kinderman is faced with so many signs of evil that in his anger, his pain, and his sadness, he finds belief that it's all part of a plan. The suffering is part of something larger. Kinderman snarls, This I believe in. I believe in death. I believe in disease. I believe in injustice and inhumanity torture and anger and hate i believe in murder i believe in pain i believe in cruelty and infidelity i believe in slime and stink and every crawling putrid thing every possible ugliness and corruption you son of a bitch i believe in you yeah when i first saw this film i was like
0: oh Then now he's going to say, but I also believe in balance or I believe in goodness, too. You know, there's (laughs) that you can't see the light without the dark. (laughs) Um, But he doesn't do that. (laughs) No, he doesn't say that. He just believes in the evil, which is like, again, Blatty with his his devout Catholicism background. Like the fact that he's that he keeps it at that is I mean, it blows my mind. Yeah. And again, I don't know how the book ends. Maybe there is some hopeful catharsis that happens, but this movie doesn't
1: have it. <laughs> no, no. But this is something that I really, really loved because there's this idea in Christianity, and I'm speaking from personal experience here, but that some, it, it's also very Permeable in some churches that you cannot talk about anything bad like you cannot have feelings of hate or anger because it's not of god like those are those are feelings that come from satan like that kind of thing (laughs) and i don't i know know i'm laughing because
0: do i believe that we should we should try that uh, as well as we can to find goodness and be happy sure is anger and sadness very real and valid
1: emotions too yes (laughs) yeah like you you should not deny yourself those feelings because it it throws the balance off and makes you very unhealthy but it's a huge part of the trauma that those involved in religion tend to come up against because it's in so many teachings right again from my own personal experience talking about like scary things or sinful things wasn't allowed in my household because Mm. it was like inviting the devil into your life oh no yeah but i mean i think quite the contrary like understanding that darkness is really the only way to defeat it or Mm -hmm. even just like live with it sometimes you don't have to defeat the bad things sometimes you just learn how to live with it you know
0: well i know the babadook is a very good example of that for sure
1: yeah it's like being chronically depressed you know that it's it's not gonna go anywhere you can treat it with meds and taking care of yourself as well as you can but like you have that with you for life so you just kind of like learn how to live with it you know what i mean um not to mention in a lot of traditional christianity the way that the bible is taught kind of makes it play out like a horror story (laughs) Like, you got the dead coming to life. You got people being possessed and like mm-hmm. descriptions of hell and what the end of days looks like. So, I know, you know, I don't think a lot of people who aren't Christian realize that Jesus performed an
0: exorcism.
1: Yeah. This wasn't
0: just like made up by c- Catholics to like, yeah. Whatever. This happened in the Bible.
1: <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> Probably it's not actually... in the same
0: way that happened in the movies, but
1: it's a very like scary story. Like, it the guy. Is. Is possessed and Jesus comes across him and then he like casts the evil into like this group of pigs. Yeah, that's right. And they all like run off the edge of a cliff and die. Like, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's very unsettling.
0: <laughs> well, and that's where that that line comes from. Like, we are legion, right? That comes from the Bible when Jesus yes. asks, like, who are you?
1: Yes, you are not
0: one. We are many. We are legion, or something like that. Yeah. it's It's, yeah so this is based off of that it's scary it
1: is (laughs) but it's also okay to talk about that evil and filth like in that context like if you're talking about the bible yeah sure but when it touches your own life no 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 like it's very taboo so no one's talking about what is like really (laughs) I sound like a <laughs> like a conspiracy theorist. Nobody's talking about what's really happening. <laughs> but, like, I truly believe this is how priests in the Catholic Church have gotten away with, like, molestation for so long, to be oh, honest. you're correct. I think yeah.
0: that's exactly that. Exactly. One of the <laughs> major reasons, for sure. Um, I just got to add here that I just thought of this, but... Obviously, like you don't talk about things and that's how you can control people, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of I from what I understand, Christians believe that they themselves can never be holy. They are always the sheep that yeah. follow the holy figure. Yeah. I was always brought up to believe that you can be just as spiritual and holy as Jesus. You can you can have that Christ consciousness yeah. that Jesus was said to have. And the f- So the fact that, like you can be you can be this powerful and loving being, uh it is p- probably would consider a lot of Catholics and a lot of Christians would think was very sinful to think that you could be equal to Jesus.
1: yeah, oh and
0: for sure. uh, and I think that because there is this sheep mentality where I can't get any better and i shouldn't get any worse you're stuck in this middle ground you're, you're stuck in almost real life purgatory yeah where you don't ascend but you also can't descend you can't right. do you can't you're stuck you can't be anything right so there is this childlike um like brainwashing that happens where it's like oh yeah you're here in the middle You can't be any better, but you also can't be any worse. And that has got to be so draining (laughs) if you feel like you can't, if you're stuck, you know, and they don't even realize it. Wow. I think it's also interesting when you talk about religious trauma uh, and I guess patriarchal institutions as well, how the Gemini killer what has dealt with all of that too? Mm, like according mm-hmm. to Smith in that same article, uh, he says, quote, "There's such viciousness and hatred in the Gemini killer. He's angry at the abusive father he had as a child and he's angry at the religion that he was a part of.
1: Yeah, so like exactly. he is also a
0: victim of it.
1: A hundred percent. And I think that's how real evil manifests. It's like it's like when it has nowhere to go, When it can't be talked about and released, it acts like this slow poison that eventually possesses your entire being. And Mm -hmm. listen, I'm not saying that this is an excuse for murder or anything like that, but it definitely explains how the seed is sown and it's trauma. I know that trauma is like kind of a buzzword right now, but we are learning so much about it and how it really seems to be the root cause of a lot of issues both like mentally physiologically and systemically so yeah i think religious trauma is definitely at the heart of a lot of it
0: like we said like the three major institutions there's systemic racism in all three of these large patriarchal institutions as well yeah yeah it's like and there's sexism yeah. In these large patriarchal institutions, the, the top three. They have sexism, racism, and they control the world. <laughs> Health healthcare, religion, and law enforcement. They control the world. Yeah. And it is like, that's the real horror story right
1: there, isn't it? It's oh, like, you can out of it. Hmm. Sorry if you wanted to have a good day, everyone. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, I
0: scared. <laughs> So let's move on to our next topic. Your flesh is not your own. The body and dreams in the Exorcist 3. So according to Sam Deegan, quote, regardless of the reason behind it, demonic possession is what Clifton describes as invasive horror. The threat comes from within the body itself, quote, a quintessential feature of demon possession is the loss of bodily control or, more specifically, an involuntary cession of control to the possessing demon, the invasive agent, unquote. So, in this film, men and women are both possessed, but it's mostly older women. According to Carrie Lynn Reinhard, quote, interestingly, the women with the most narrative impact in the film have been positioned as older women, the voice of the killer of the priest, the mother in law, and the woman in the hospital outside of the priest's room, unquote. But why older women? Narratively, Why is this so effective? (laughs) Well, according to Alana Prochuk for the essay, Hell is Older People, Aging as the Ultimate Cinematic Horror, quote, Isolation, frustrated attempts to communicate, bodily decay, imminent death. These are the hallmarks of Western horror movies and also of old age. If stereotypes are to be believed, While horror's target audience is young and supposedly characterized by delusions of immortality and indifference to anyone older than 40, the genre's movies are often dominated by elderly characters, usually elderly women. In a culture obsessed with female youth and beauty, the horror of aging is hardly gender neutral, and there is remarkable overlap in the stereotypes about women of those concerning old folks. You know, needy, frail, and irrational, unquote. (laughs) Procheck goes on to say, quote, Loss of self-control can also imply susceptibility to evil control by others. Yet another reason aging scares us. In The Exorcist 3, patients on the senile dementia ward are possessed by the spirit of a deranged murderer and enact multiple killings. One scene shows an elderly woman crawling on the ceiling of the ward, unbeknownst to the investigator standing below her. The image suggests a profound lack of self-determination. The woman is both infantile, she's crawling, and animalistic, hovering like a fly but certainly not a responsible adult. In a later scene, a different elderly woman nearly decapitates a teenage girl quite out of the blue. (laughs) Her brutality is juxtaposed with the innocent senility moments before the attack. Can you help me? Is it bedtime? The murder... (laughs) This is what she says. And the murder attempt makes us jump, but it also distracts us from the closer-to-home terror of lost self-sufficiency unquote. So that's something I never really thought of that yeah, like these women are treated uh they're infantilized because they're older, but also they're maybe not, you know, they have mental illnesses, mental disorders. So I never really thought of this, but yeah, like these women in this film are 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 like I said, like infantilized. And then you have these older men who are the heroes of the story.
1: Well, basically, there's no safe space for women.
0: That's <laughs> right. You're right. And which makes it, that makes it really interesting because of Blatty being a a, a Catholic. You know, what does he think of, like, where, <laughs> where do women need to be? Because if we look back at The Exorcist, you know, uh, Chris McNeil, she is this movie star who doesn't get to spend a lot of time with her daughter even though she absolutely loves her daughter in the movie you see that for sure and, yeah. and she does spend time with her in the movie but it makes me wonder will he spend will she spend more time with her daughter now that this well, has happened is yeah. that what he's trying to say it's i don't know
1: it's almost like chris is being punished for for the being things successful that she's doing yeah being successful and also um being separated from her husband who is right. Reagan's dad like it's uh it makes my skin crawl it's like women try so 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 hard to have it all and be able to do all these things and they're just thwarted by (laughs) patriarchal systems
0: (laughs) she's just missing one thing and that's religion but she gets that at the end and it's like oh god okay
1: (laughs) yeah it's you gotta have either a husband or religion like ugh. but kind of going along with what we were saying a second ago it's also a testament to how much we hate the elderly in this country like no joke and you learn this very quickly working in especially human services but mental health and like overall health care they are mm-hmm. the outcasts and it's because society views them as like having nothing to contribute kind of like how i was talking a minute ago about how they're not of childbearing age like which is kind of ironic because they hold all of the answers in this murder investigation so mm-hmm. In a way, it's kind of like, oh, you want to ignore us? Okay, well, we'll just wait here for you to pay attention because we have what you need. (laughs) So in a way, it's drawing attention to what we're most uncomfortable with, like the fact that the elderly lack proper care or understanding when it comes to aging and illness, and they're also in the end of life. Like, we have a really, really huge problem with death in our country, too, but... It's, uh, and I think that goes hand in hand with being uncomfortable with elderly people because they are close to death, you know? Um, but it's very jarring to witness because we expect elderly people to be feeble and nice and innocent, almost like children. So, yeah, it's like children and old people, they... (laughs) They really yeah. get to us, <laughs> right?
0: Well, uh, Reinhard says possessing old women to kill is an example of the hag of a connection to witchcraft as the threat of mm-hmm. to man and a patriarchy. So it would also be an example of like gender bending of objection mm. because it appears to be a male personality inhabiting the women. Quote, catatonics are so easy to possess, unquote, Uh, and that's what Patient X says. Old women demonstrate great supernatural power when possessed and the unholy howl. People without agency being controlled like puppets and gaining power when controlled by this masculine force, unquote. Mm -hmm. And Sam Deegan says, quote, the head. Is a particular source of horror in the Exorcist 3, such as in a key sequence where a nurse is decapitated with a pair of industrial medical shears. The use Oof. of violence and mutilation within the film, heads, blood, and limbs are displayed frequently, suggests that the wholeness of the body is only transitory. And the dehumanized flesh is more easily disassembled than one would like to believe. Your flesh is not your own, but your dreams and memories and even sense of identity may also not be yours. The Gemini killer inhabiting the body of Karis in The Exorcist 3 remarks, I have dreams of a rose and falling down a long flight of stairs. These are not the dreams of the demon, but of Father Karis, distorted and confused by the other entities possessing his consciousness, unquote.
1: Oh, hi. Hello. Yes, I love this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love the idea. I, I take it back. I don't love the idea. But it's interesting to me that the idea of removing the head is the most sacrilegious thing you can do because you're essentially removing the consciousness of a person. And while we haven't figured out where the soul resides, I am willing to bet that it's in the brain or the central nervous system. And uh, so upon further review, I did find many sources that said the soul is thought to reside within the brain. So there you go. And here's another interesting concept, according to walpolecatholic.net, The human body shares in the dignity of the image of God. It is a human body precisely because it is animated by a spiritual soul. And it is the whole human person that is intended to become, in the body of Christ, a temple of the spirit. The human person, though made of body and soul, is a unity. Through this very bodily condition, he sums up himself in the elements of the material world. Through him, they are thus brought to their highest perfection and can raise their voice in praise freely given to the creator. For this reason, man may not despise his bodily life. Rather, he is obliged to regard his body as good and to hold it in honor since God has created it and will raise it up on the last day. Yeah. Yeah. So really, the Gemini killer is creating the ultimate chaos for those who are faithful. So if your soul resides in your brain and you sever that from your body, when you're resurrected, will you know who you are? Will you get lost? Like, I'm wondering if this is the point of Kinderman's dream and how the victims are stuck in this kind of limbo wondering where to go. Right. Well, like you mentioned, Kinderman
0: dreams as well, just like Karis. So according to Jerry Smith, Kinderman's dreams are filled with surreal sequences in which he walks through heaven and sees Fabio, Patrick (laughs) Ewing (laughs) and other celebrities adding to the realistically weird happenings of our dreams, with some people appearing only because they were a passing thought at some point prior to slumber. And in, in the same dream, an angel of the deceased boy Kinderman is investigating runs up to the lieutenant and hugs him before Kinderman tells the boy, I'm sorry you were killed. I miss you. And we see the softness inside the typically hard-edged performance Scott gives in the film, unquote. And I gotta say about that, this is one of the most realistic depictions of what dreaming feels like. I saw one article saying, what the fuck? That was so weird. Why did he say it like that? Like, why did he say, like, I miss you? You know, like, that's so stupid. And I was like, you fetus. He was dreaming. (laughs) Like, are you kidding? Like, you talk weird in your dreams. Like, what? Oh, God. Yeah. So Samuel L. Jackson is also in that dream. (laughs) (laughs) His voice is dubbed over, but he's playing the blind man who says the living are deaf. And I think it's interesting that Kinderman's dreams and his, and this idea of heaven is a bit chaotic. And the fact that the angels don't speak and are played by celebrities that aren't known for speaking, right? Yeah. Like Fabio was on book covers and Ewing was a professional basketball player. Yeah. It's almost like Kinderman is seeing these angels, these celestial beings he doesn't believe in. As silent, because they don't do anything to help him or save anyone, right? Silence is violence. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also the contradiction of the living being deaf. Is that the bit of doubt in Kinderman's mind, that maybe he just isn't listening to this higher power? Just a thought.
1: Well, my very Catholic maternal grandparents and relatives, God bless them. They were all (laughs) Polish and Dutch immigrants and... They would say this thing that was like, believe half of what you see and none of what you hear. Mm. Um, And that might have just been like a generational thing. But while there's this healthy dose of skepticism that I think is essential to forming opinions and making decisions, this line of thinking is so toxic. And it harms the people that are trying to spread the word of their disparities and like... Dis disclusion is that what i want to say sure yeah in a way i think this is a commentary on how people will kind of use religion in that way to justify certain actions but then they'll like turn away when the bible says to be inclusive and help those who are oppressed and treat everyone equal it's kind of like cherry picking what you want to hear and what you want to see Yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Back to dreams. (laughs) (laughs) So celebrities and dreamscapes aren't just featured in the actual dreams in this film. The inclusion of very random celebrities and pop culture items in what is supposed to be the non-dream world blends the film's reality and the character's dreams. Um, According to Daniel Kurland, quote, there's even a truly unbelievable appearance from Batman's Joker in a brief act of sacrilegious blasphemy. It's unclear if these are the result of Blatty just having fun or his attempts to conjure some lucid dream effect where you think that you yourself might be possessed and hallucinating. It kind of works and it's a surreal tactic, unquote. And Larry King also makes an appearance in the restaurant that Father Dyer and Kinderman are in at the start of the film. That's so weird. I know. So from the very beginning of this movie, as the audience, we are not grounded. Yeah. Because the first shot is like the first thing that the first thing we experience while the credits are rolling is a dream. Because mm-hmm. we see Thomas with the rose. We go up the steps. We go through Georgetown. Like, we are dreaming in that scene, too. So, like, from the very beginning, we we as the audience, we are not grounded in reality. Right. And according to Andrew, Andrew Carroll, quote, The Exorcist 3 feels like being trapped in a dreadful dream. One where no matter how hard you try waking, life always remains just out of reach. The nightmarish imagery of The Exorcist Three is at once as subtle as a scalpel and as blunt as a sledgehammer. When Kinderman visits Father Riley, all the lights go off, and echoing the film's opening, dark shadows race through the Georgetown Seminary, and the face on the statue of a saint changes into a fanged parody. Other moments, like flies orbiting a nurse and A Crucifix Weeping Blood are more in keeping with Catholic parables and Bible stories, unquote. Yeah. So yeah, from the very beginning, we are all feeling like we are kind of out of our body. Like we are seeing like pop culture icons and celebrities and we're just kind of like floating through space and seeing like weird imagery all over the place. So we are never, we never know if we are in someone's dream or if we are in the reality of the film. We are, are maybe we're possessed. Are we possessed by somebody else? Cause there's a lot of POV shots in this as well. I don't know. It's pretty great. It's so good. Okay. Let's jump to the final topic. It's a wonderful life. Frank Capra's (laughs) film in relation to The Exorcist 3.
1: I'm sorry. Every time I see the double L in this, all I can think of is like, llama. (laughs) (laughs) According to Sam Deegan, quote, a key
0: reference in The Exorcist 3 is the 1946 Frank Capra film, It's a Wonderful Life. Both Kinderman and Father Dyer cite the film as their favorite and attend a cinema showing together early in the first act. It's A Wonderful Life is written in blood on the wall of Dyer's hospital room after he's murdered. A trademark of The Gemini Killer is adding an extra L into words. It's easy to read this Capra reference as a wider connection to Blatty's use of shifting identities and realities. In Capra's film, George Bailey is so depressed by the difficulties in his life that he considers suicide, but a helpful angel takes him to an alternate reality where he never existed, to show him how much worse the town of Bedford Falls would be without him. Lorraine Mortimer describes the events of It's a Wonderful Life as a, quote, series of wounds that can't be healed, unquote. George Bailey is similar to Blatty's protagonists in that his character is driven to despair and madness because of his idealism. His optimistic vision of the world is destroyed over and over again, a theme common in Capra. Mortimer writes, quote, Capra consistently acknowledges the encroachment of nothingness upon his characters, unquote. Whoa. Ooh,
1: Lots to unpack right. here. <laughs> yeah. So let's unpack this a little more. So um, just a brief disclaimer about this section. Um, if you've never seen It's a Wonderful Life, first of all, go watch it. It's great. It'll fill you with joy. I know well. a lot well
0: or sadness. <laughs> it's one of those movies that people think, okay, it's just a Christmas movie, but only like the last ten minutes are really are, like Christmas. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. it's
0: a draw. Otherwise, it's just it's a drama. It's yeah. a dramatic film. Yeah,
1: really good point. Um, and second, like, there's gonna be a lot of breakdowns of the film, so might be a little hard to understand if you've never seen it, but. Bear with us. We're gonna we're gonna circle back. Yeah. Pause so, the episode now.
0: Watch it's a Wonderful Life, and come back. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yes. All right. So Christopher Wilson writes for Smithsonian Magazine. While Frank Capra created a propaganda film for the United States government in 1944 called The Negro Soldier, which presented an inclusive history showing black involvement in U.S. wars, politics, and culture since the Revolution. A far less flattering picture of African Americans emerges when George's wish to never have been born is granted by Clarence. Bedford Falls, his hometown, is transformed into the vice-ridden Pottersville. Capra's hints at the degradation of the town come in the form of black music, jazz heard pouring out of the taverns and diamond dance halls. Higgins also noted that Mary's fate as an old maid in this alternative universe portrayed as hideous and sad <laughs> is, she's a librarian, okay? It's like I know. It's like not bad at all. It's presented as perfectly fine, appropriate, and desirable for Annie in the real world. And Annie is the black maid of George's family, and it's a wonderful life. So right, you know. she
0: says at the end. She goes, uh, "She's not married." Annie says, "She says I haven't found a husband or something." Like, and it's a joke. Yeah, and everyone laughs. You know. Yeah. But when Mary does, marry the the young white lady doesn't have a husband. It's sad. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So Wilson also says, if you were to talk to Frank Capra, he would say that his efforts in diversity in the film were to include an Italian family, which he based on his own family and by hollywood standards that was diversity back then
0: (laughs) oh my god right
1: um and according to another author uh, whose last name is higgins about four million italians immigrated to the united states between the 1880s and 1920s and many faced discrimination resulting in around 10,000 Italian-Americans being incarcerated when the United States and Italy fought in World War II. This prejudice is alluded to in the film when Mr. Potter tries to buy George off with the promise of a high-paying job to bring an end to Bailey Park. Uh, The greedy capitalist asks the idealistic George if he is really going to waste his life playing nursemaid to a lot of garlic eaters. Oh, God. I, uh, I remember that now. Yikes! Yeah. <laughs> Yikes is right. At a time when uh, Catholic immigrants and rural communities in small towns were the subject of threats, harassment, and terrorism by the Ku Klux Klan, the portrayal of the Americanization of an immigrant family like the Mar- Martinis, despite the stereotypical elements we see in their depiction in the film, was Capra's ode to the American dream. So we're seeing a lot of problems here already. But <laughs> <laughs> he goes on to say that while Harry Bailey makes... Harry is um, George's brother in the right, film. His younger brother. Yep, he makes headlines as a Navy flyer who shoots down two kamikaze planes and prevents them from crashing into a transport ship full of soldiers... George and Mary and others in Bedford Falls support the war effort the way millions of Americans did. Mary ran the USO, and George served as everything from air raid warden to organizer of paper drives to scrap drives to rubber drives. As Higgins points out, the actor behind George, Jimmy Stewart, commanded four engine bombers in World War II and came home suffering from PTSD to the point he questioned how he could ever go back to acting in Hollywood. The dark and tortured emotional struggles that George endures throughout the film speak to the trauma millions of Americans were living with following the war, just as Stuart was. So, wow. That's a lot. But both of these films, The Exorcist and It's a Wonderful Life, deal with death and disparities within communities, but where It's a Wonderful Life commends a white man for all he has done within his community the exorcist 3 kind of looks at what's being done by white men Mm -hmm. and how unhelpful that is (laughs) right so so both films also address the topic of suicide and without getting too much into the original storyline of the exorcist spoiler alert we know from previous discussions that father Karras dies because he jumps out of Reagan's window after kind of absorbing Pazuzu following her exorcism. So in It's a Wonderful Life, George, the main character, is deterred from ending his own life because of all of the good he has done. So he is believed to be a good man. And mm-hmm. so it would be such a shame for him to jump off a bridge. and. Right similarly Father Karras is what you would also consider a good man along with Kinderman and Dyer and I think where the films kind of diverge is at the intersection of trauma and guilt and traditional masculinity and the idea of sacrifice so right
0: they they like to go see a movie where the guy doesn't jump to his death exactly like, like what their friend ended up doing Right. Yes,
1: yeah, and I mean it, there's like a whole mystery surrounding Karis's death because nobody was there to witness the exorcism. no, they get there, they get there, and there's two dead priests and a crying girl, yeah, yeah, so like they don't understand that it was a sacrifice to save this young girl, and they're like, "What the fuck, like what is right. going on here so to continue, George is a representation of what a man is traditionally, like, supposed to be, right? Like, he figures out the problem, he provides for his family, and he serves others, and in return, he gets the support of his community, and the town rallies behind him, and the story works because it pays no mind to racism or sexism or gender roles or the realities of capitalism and the way that greed and corruption actually run the country, like it touches on it a tiny, tiny bit, but it's all kind of this facade. So right. sorry to everyone who is like, ah, this this story is so great. It's only the story of a white man. Yeah, so it's
0: kind of a white savior story. Truly, truly, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is, huh?
1: So the men in. The Exorcist 3 are faced with these very realistic problems that I would argue kind of tower over George and this whitewashed world of Bedford Falls. And I think Father Dyer and Kinderman enjoy this film so much because of that reason. Like, there's this fantasy that they want to live out, that they want to be the heroes and, you know, possibly even the traditional men. But These problems that they face are so big, and they don't have a community that rallies behind them, and Kinderman's police department is full of racism and stupidity, and Dyer's parish is full of cynicism and old men and fear, and the Gemini... Exploits these fears and insecurities and multiplies them by picking very specific victims. Correct. Yeah, even though
0: he he never says that they're he says that they're random. The Gemini killer says that these oh
1: I only go by random, kill random people, and I'm like, uh Yeah, he's like, I'm not racist, but
0: (laughs) uh you're full of (laughs) shit. Yeah.
1: (laughs) yeah yeah it's like okay next (laughs) right (laughs) but i mean ironically and i'm not trying to be like a gatekeeper here like everyone has traumas there's big t's there's little t's it's all relative to your own life however i would say that kinderman has a a little bit more resilience than george does (laughs)
0: Yeah, George C. Scott as Kinderman. He was really good for this role. I think so. Because you really get to see, through his performance, how incredibly uh, disturbing the world is. Mm -hmm. And how you have to sort of accept and believe in this evil in order to conquer it. Yeah. Um, and maybe that means putting all that is good aside and shooting it in the face. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, because he, like you said, like mentioned earlier, he knows no other way to destroy it. And this, the ending of this film is so sad because, yeah, the evil's gone, but it's, and Karis's soul, I suppose, is saved. But there's no real resolution they're standing over karis's grave and that's it they're standing there and they're like well now what yeah you know it's like a wonderful life it's, it's a wonderful life everyone is happy this is the great people the community comes together and make sure he gets the money to pay off the loan yep and and an order quote-unquote is restored yeah. Peace is restored. That doesn't happen in The Exorcist 3. And it feels real. And it's it does.
1: Sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a very harsh, harsh look at reality. And where you have this one film where a man is like at the end of his rope and like looking for answers and looking for the hope in the world... You do. You have this other man who is just like, yep, just going to keep trudging along. And he doesn't really get to see any hope by the end of the film. It's right, just because like,
0: there's always going to be bad things happening that he's going to have to deal with. Where yes. George, yeah, there's going to be bad things that George is probably going to have to deal with. But like he has a restored sense of faith and and restored sense of faith. In, in in i guess religion because he believes in angels now yeah but also in people because they all come together to show how much they appreciate him yeah nobody comes together to show how much they appreciate uh kinderman yeah.
1: and that film it's a wonderful life was like his one last little glimmer of hope and now it's ruined because every time he thinks of it's a wonderful life he's gonna think about the death of his best That's friend. That's true.
0: It's been tainted. That yeah. memory of seeing that film with his friend has been tainted. Yeah. Yeah, that too. I never thought of that. And it's like, this is, obviously we're going through the drama of this. We don't want to sound like we're law enforcement sympathizers. <laughs> no. You know what I mean? Uh, no. But this is like, the we're, we're talking about the drama of this character in this film and what... He has what he goes through and how at the end, he's just who's he standing with at the end? Oh. I don't God. He's standing with somebody else over Karis's grave, and it's like, well, that was fun.
1: Now oh. again,
0: now what? Now what's gonna happen? And that's yeah. it. It's over. The movie's over, and you're like, damn., <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, so good, but it's so sad,
0: so good, but so sad. Wow! Well, oh. thanks for waiting for this episode. <laughs> I thanks hope it for didn't waiting didn't <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this month's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Thank you all for listening. Again, we are going to be taking a – we're not really going to be taking a break. We're going to be working behind the scenes to try to figure stuff out. But, like, yeah. we're going to be taking a break from producing content and uh, releasing episodes. So – Mm -hmm. Um, if you want to see us do really well, (laughs) I hate to be a shill for Patreon, but that is going to be the way that we can create more content and build a better, better, a better show. And, you know, like I said earlier, Abby and I are a two team podcast and we do all the research and all the discussion topics and we have help from People who, out of the goodness of their hearts, volunteer to help us uh, research and write. So, yeah, you know, if you really love what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Uh, Yeah, needless to say, we work really hard on the show, and we really appreciate your help. And if you appreciate our work, head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. And if Patreon isn't your deal, and we totally get that, you can also show us your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. A link to our merch shop and our Patreon is in the show notes of this episode, so check it out.
1: Yes, and a free way to help the show is by following us on social media, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast, and don't forget to also tell a friend! And spread the word about our show, please.
0: Yes, Black Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter. Check out this episode's show notes to see how you can donate and support and help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning.
1: Bye.